Can you hear me okay? Yeah. All right. So it's good to have you with us this morning. We want to uh, start, first of all, by uh, wishing Eden Steltz a happy birthday. Uh, she decided to have her birthday this past week and uh, passed her first test. I guess if you, can, if you can grow for nine months and then come out, you pass your first test. And she did. So we're really uh, happy for David and Ellie and the whole family. And we're excited to meet Eden at some point. So if you guys are tuning in, we miss you guys and look forward to seeing you soon. Um, for those of you that are tuning in online, it's good to have you with us uh, virtually this morning. Look forward to seeing some of you. Uh, I know some of you mentioned you're looking forward to getting back, and we look forward to having you back soon. Um, and for those of you that are here, thanks for coming out. It's good to have you here. It's really always great to have like faces and people to interact with when you're talking. Um, it just makes it so much better. Uh, I think back on a year ago, and David and I were in our living rooms chatting on our screens to each other, and um, I'd rather see your faces than, no offense, David, it's not your face, it's just the screen thing, um, but I'd rather see, you know, all the live faces, so. Why don't we start with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into our Bible study today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the blessing of life and for uh, safety, for uh, Ellie and Eden, we thank you so much, Lord, for a chance to come and to celebrate all the works that you do and to be reminded of your sovereignty, of your control, and just the way that you are always uh, looking out for us and always wanting to use us for your work. And we pray that today as we spend time with you that your name would be praised and that we would be drawn closer to you. For we ask this for your name's sake, for your kingdom, and for your glory. Amen. So if you have not been with us, we are in the book of Esther, or Ezra chapter 6 and a half, if you want to look at it that way. The book of Esther happens between chapters 6 and 7, so we call it uh, Ezra 6 and a half. And the first four chapters of the book of Ezra, I'm sorry, of Esther, excuse me, the first four chapters of the book of Esther just seem like bad news after bad news after bad news. You ever have one of those seasons in your life where it seems like you get bad news and then you get more bad news and then you get, well, there used to be a saying, waiting for the other shoe to drop. How many of you have like lived that for any extensive period of time? Well, this is like chapters one through four of the book of Esther. Um, both hands up, whatever works, right? Um, so you have all these things that take place. You have all the virgins that are collected, and Esther's part of that group that gets collected and, and become part of the harem of the king. You have uh, Mordecai, who goes through and actually tells Esther about an assassination attempt on the king, saves the king's life, and gets no reward for it all, no thanks, nothing. You have uh, Haman or Haman, depending upon whether you want to pronounce it, you know, Haman, or however you want to pronounce it. You have this guy who's just really bad. And he not, he's so mad at Mordecai that he just wants to wipe out all the Jews altogether. So just, things are getting worse and worse and worse. And by the way, the Jews are in exile. Like, they're not even living in their own country, most of them. There's 50,000 of them that went back to Jerusalem. But they're not even in their own country. So as if being displaced wasn't enough, then you have this king who just does whatever he wants with your people. And then if that's not enough, you have the second in command that just wants to wipe out your whole people group. It's like, it's bad. It's just bad and bad and bad and bad and bad. Um, and then we pick up 
in chapter five, and things kind of start to shift a little bit. It kind of gets a little better, which is good. Um, We left the story with a group of people fasting and uh, leading up to a time when Esther was going to approach the king. We mentioned that though it says fasting, normally in the scriptures when, when the Jews fasted, they fasted and they prayed. There's no prayer mentioned in this book at all. There's no reference to God at all. Uh, There's no reference to prayer, but they fasted. We're going to assume that they were also praying because that's part of their heritage. Um, And one of the statements that we had was this one. Um, David said some of the people that are online are having a hard time getting in to the online. Um, I guess uh, if you're on, uh, I don't know what to tell you because they can't even hear my instructions. So... Uh, so one of the statements was, if Esther doesn't go and say something, deliverance will come from somewhere else. And that's really a statement of faith, because we talked about the fact that there needed to be a remnant. There needed to be, God had promised through the prophets that the Jews would not get totally wiped out. And I believe part of Mordecai's faith was such that if God says there's going to be some left over, then they can't all get annihilated. And somebody asked me a question last week. Well, what about the 50,000 Jews in Jerusalem? Wouldn't they have been safe? And the answer is not really. Let me, I'm going to bring up a map because maps are fun. I'm going to bring up a map that kind of shows the empire at the time. And this empire, um, the purple, like all these different regions that are highlighted right now, that's all part of the Persian Empire. And I'm going to kind of walk off the screen a little bit. But in the green over here, you can see Jerusalem. Jerusalem was part of the Persian Empire at this time. When we talk about the 127 provinces, that would stretch throughout that entire region that you see. It goes through Turkey. It goes into Egypt. It covers all of Israel. I mean, that's a massive, massive land area that these 127 provinces covered. So when this decree went out... To all the provinces, first of all, it would take about two to three months to get to everybody. You have to understand that. It wasn't just like send a text message. So this message getting out there took some time, but it encompassed all those areas. The Jews were, it was, the command was to kill, destroy, and annihilate the Jews in that entire region, including the 50,000 that were in Jerusalem. So if there was no intervention by Esther, Mordecai believed that God would still intervene because there would need to be a remnant. And this command would have wiped out even the 50,000 that we left behind in the book of Ezra. Um, They would be included in this mob that would be just totally destroyed by by their neighbors. Um, So, other statements we looked at were things like, who knows, perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. And they seem very fatalistic. Um, The fact that they never pray seems very almost agnostic, just like we'll just fast. That's something that that cultures would do, even non-Jewish cultures would fast. Um, But that kind of makes us ponder and stop just for a second and think, were the Jews so far removed from God at this point that they did not acknowledge his sovereignty? Is that possible? That they had not only walked away from God so far before they were exiled, that now that they're exiled, they're even further away from God, and they don't even acknowledge that he's in control. 
Were they so far separated from Yahweh that they didn't even think to pray? Or are we meant to assume that they not only acknowledged God, but prayed to God, and it's just not brought up in this book? Now, depending upon which commentary you want to read, you can take either perspective. I'm going to let you decide that. The author doesn't tell us that on purpose because they want us to think through and to ponder through that question. So chapter five, turning point. Esther's been fasting for how many days? Three days. That's right. Good job. Three days. And after three days, let's see what she does. Chapter five of the book of Esther, verses one and two. On the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. And as soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor with him. And the king extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. So you can almost kind of feel the tension here. The king is in his throne room looking out. She walks into the courtyard area, which is going to come up again, this courtyard. It's a pretty specific area. She walks to there, kind of just hoping that he notices. That's what you did. You waited. You did not just go in to the throne. You waited to see if the king would acknowledge you. And she waited. Now, you notice she also changed her clothes. She got all dolled up. She got her queen garb on, made sure she looked very official. And, and there's that phrase. All right, so, guys, I'm going to put you on the spot. You ever have your wife get all dressed up, looking really pretty, and she walks in front of you? Does ever catch your eye, or are you just really obtuse? I mean, you're like, oh. Oh, something's different. I mean, you don't want to do that. No, when she really gets all dressed up and everything and she walks in front of you, you're like, wow. That phrase that's here where she got favor in his eyes, is like, he was like, oh, wow, that's my queen. I mean, he was very excited and impressed by the way that she looked. And he said, come on in. I think it's really just kind of a fun phrase. Um, so we don't know if she stood in the courtyard for 20 seconds or 20 minutes. We have no idea how long she waited for the king to actually notice her. But could you imagine being her? Not knowing if you were going to get the death sentences, sentence for just showing up or whether you were going to be accepted by the king and just showing up in the courtyard and going, I hope he notices. And the longer the clock ticked, probably the harder it would be to stay there. Um, a side note, the book opened up with Vashti being vanquished, just totally vanquished from the king's presence, removed as queen because she disobeyed the command of the king. Esther is now breaking the law of the land, in essence, disobeying the command of the king, much like Vashti did. But Esther is accepted by the king. Verse 3. What is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be given to you. Well, if it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. The king said, hurry up and get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared, and while drinking wine, of course, the king asked Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom will be done. 
Let's pause there for a second. This phrase, even to half the kingdom. It was not a literal phrase. We call them idioms, right? It was, it was a figure of speech. Have you ever wondered why that figure of speech, up to half the kingdom? If I were the king and I gave somebody more than half the kingdom, there would be somebody in that kingdom wealthier than me, perhaps even more powerful than me. So to say you can, give, you can ask for whatever you want up to half the kingdom would be like saying you can ask for anything up to the point where it makes you greater than me. As long as you don't ask for something that makes you greater than me, I will grant it to you. It's a pretty cool phrase, but it also shows the ego of the king. I mean, but I think it also shows the generosity of the king. He didn't have to say that phrase, but he invited Esther in and said, what do you want? Just tell me what you want up to half of my kingdom. So they could ask for up to 50%, but not more. And nobody, by the way, would ask for, oh, give me um, 50% of those regions I see on the map there. I, I, want, I want the green ones. I mean, nobody would do that. Okay. It was, again, it was a figure of speech. So here they are together, uh, and we have wine mentioned again. I think that that's kind of just typical for this book of Esther. Um, let's see, the king had a party with a bunch of wine in the beginning. That's what got things started, right? He, he'd been a little bit inebriated and wanted his queen to come. Uh, the king, after signing the papers with Haman saying, kill off all the Jews, he and Haman sit down and have a glass of wine together. So that's there. And then they have this banquet that Esther throws, and while he's, while he's drinking wine. The fact that they just bring that up, this is totally, you get, the author has left out so many details. The fact that he keeps throwing this detail in, I think it's just kind of fun. It's like, yeah, the king really, really, really liked his wine. I think he was more controlled by his wine than anything else. So the king had a drink and says, what do you want up to half of my kingdom? Um, but perhaps the greatest irony of this passage that's really subtle and you might miss it is that as soon as Esther says to the king, I've prepared a banquet, and I'd like you and Haman to come and be at the banquet. The king orders Haman to do as Esther says. That's kind of ironic. And I think it's really kind of just, it's just subtle in there. Go and do what Esther says and get Haman and bring him out here for the banquet right away. So I think that's pretty uh, interesting that it's kind of like just that subtle little irony there that He's trying to wipe out all the Jews, which includes her and her, her, um, her uncle, her cousin, sorry, uh, Mordecai. And she's trying to, to do away with that whole people group, or Haman is. And now Haman is taking an order from her. So just kind of fun. Verse 7. So Esther answered to the king. The king said, what do you want up to half of my kingdom? Esther answered, this is my petition and my request. If I have found favor in your eyes, in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet. I will prepare for them tomorrow, and I will do what the king has asked. So she's going to throw a second banquet. Now, it's pretty bold to show up in the courtroom and wait for the king to acknowledge you. could cost you your life. But when the king asks you a question, and you say to the king, I don't want to answer that question right now. Come back tomorrow. So she's telling the king what to do. Come back tomorrow, and I'll answer your question. That's just, like, I don't know. That's, that's not normal. That's not what you would normally say to the king. If the king says, 
what do you want? You tell the king what you want. She says, well, I'd like you to come back tomorrow, and then I will tell you what you want. It's pretty bold, uh, but it, it also makes us stop and ask, like, why two banquets? Wasn't one enough? Why, why were there two? Um, some have suggested by doing it this way, if the king showed up to the second banquet, if he was willing to show up and did show up, then it would prove that he was certainly willing to give Esther whatever she was asking. I guess that's a possibility. Um, perhaps Esther was so scared and just kind of shaken by the whole thing of just getting ready to meet. the. And she had three days to think about this and to get worked up. Maybe she needed a day just to compose herself so she could ask that question. We, we really don't know. But why invite Haman? Why invite the bad guy to the banquet, right? She could have just had the king there. She didn't need to have him there. One of my commentaries says this. <laughs> I have a commentary that's commenting about the commentaries. Okay, just so that you know. The, the commentaries have proposed numerous explanations for Haman's inclusion in the invitation. Uh, for example, to make the king suspicious or jealous of Haman, to avoid being alone with Xerxes, or to lull Haman into a false sense of security. Perhaps she thought it best for Haman to be present when she made her accusations against him. And the commentary goes on to say, we don't know. It's another one of those frustrating things, like, why two banquets? Why have him there? We don't know. We, it's left out. But the fact that he was drinking wine was included. Um, so why prolong, why prolong the request? If you have the king's favor, something could happen between today and tomorrow that could make it so it's not so favorable for the king. So why take the chance? Why prolong? Don't know. Why not just ask him in the courtroom when she had the first invitation, when it was private and in an official place, when the king held out the scepter and said, what do you want? Why not just then say, well, here's my request. Another one of my commentaries said this, these negotiations reveal that there is a right time and a place to accomplish a task and a wrong time and a place. Some people want things done now and believe an immediate decision is necessary, but the person they're talking to may not be ready to make the desired decision. Sometimes one has to be content to sow the seeds of an idea and then let it germinate for a while before it's possible to push a decision that will reap the harvest. Now, perhaps that's the reason we don't know. Again, they're reading into it quite a bit here. Um, I wonder what the king was thinking. Like, what is so important that the queen would want to prepare a banquet for me twice? This must be really important to her, really significant that she would do that. Um, but we don't know. We just don't have that information. So verse 9 of chapter 5, that day Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear in his presence. Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. Yeah, Haman controlled himself and went home. And he sent for his friends and for his wife, Zeresh, to join him. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. And he told them all about how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials and the royal staff. And what's more, he added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. And I'm invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. 
But still none of this satisfied me, since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. So his wife, Zeresh, and all of his friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. It's kind of really warped advice, right? Now, the gallows, remember, was like a big stake. Their practice was impaling, not hanging. So you're talking about a pole 75 feet up, pretty visible. It would be the highest structure in that region to kind of stick them to. It's kind of gross, actually. So I want to ask you, what kind of people do you like to have as friends? Wise people. Yeah, in, in situational comedies that we watch on TV, you sometimes will have that friend, that friend that's just really annoying and always boasting about himself. You know what I'm talking about? You think of some TV shows where that, that guy is in the TV show or in the movie. Um, they really have no friends. They just think they're everybody's friends, and people kind of tolerate him as he boasts about how great he is. Um, I can think of several movies where the actor The Rock is in it, and, it's just, and that's him to a T. He's just this arrogant, boastful person telling everybody how great he is. Um, I'll probably get some you know, comments somewhere about that. But So Haman calls together his friends and his wife, and he says, uh, and tells them, look how rich I am. I have a feeling they knew that. Look how blessed I am with sons. I think his wife knew that one too. Could be wrong, but I think she had a clue. And then he tells him how he was handpicked by the king to be number two in the land. Look how important I am. I think they kind of knew that too. So they basically sit around listening to this guy talk about how great he is. You can just see him tuning him out. Yeah, yeah, we know, we know, we know. Do you really think that Haman had never done this before? Or you think this is just like part of his routine? I think this is part of his routine. Um, and I don't really think they wanted to hear it again. And uh, I don't think that they really wanted it. I don't think these are the kinds of people who are just like looking for friends that, that they want to listen to like that. But then there's the news that is new. And he says, I got to eat with the king and the queen just in a private banquet. And I get to go again tomorrow. Now, that was new. And it was pretty significant. However, no amount of wealth or posterity, or position, or prestige would satisfy him because there was still somebody who didn't acknowledge his greatness. I think this should be one of the lessons and one of the wake-up calls of this particular story, that Pride and arrogance will blind us to what we do have and will lead us down a path to destruction for what we don't have. Here is a man who's been elevated to number two in the land, one of the richest men around, enough that he figured out somehow he could offer two-thirds of the royal treasury as a bribe to kill off the Jews. He had 10 sons we know of. We don't know how many other kids. And he was in special relationship with the king and had a special place in the kingdom. 
And he could not acknowledge and appreciate those things because of Mordecai, because of one man who refused to give him the honor that he felt he deserved. That's arrogance and that's pride. And it's keeping him from even enjoying what he has. He says, I can't even enjoy this because of this one guy. And pride and arrogance will always do that to us. When we believe we're entitled to something or we believe that we deserve something and we don't get it, and we step into that arrogance road uh, that, that Haman is in right now, it, it leads to destruction and it blinds us of all the great things that God has done. We need to be careful about that. Now, if Esther had never asked the king for a second banquet, these events wouldn't have taken place. So we mentioned, why wait? Something bad could happen. And so far, what we know is going to happen is a pole has been erected to string up Mordecai on in the time between the first banquet and the second banquet. So just when things might start to look okay, because the king accepted Esther, they all of a sudden look really bleak once again. Now, I don't know about you, but I love a good plot twist. I don't like watching a movie where I can figure out how it's going to go. And there is a great plot twist in the book of Esther in the beginning of chapter 6. And it's one of my favorite parts of the whole book. Chapter 6, verse 1. That night, sleep escaped the king. So he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. They found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana and Teresh two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. And the king inquired what honor and special recognition had been given to Mordecai for this act. And the king's personal attendants replied, well, nothing has been done for him. And the king asked, well, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he prepared for him. The king's attendant answered, Haman is there, standing in the court. Well, have him enter, the king ordered. So Haman entered, and the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, well, who is it that the king would want to honor more than me? Haman told the king, for the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn and a horse the king himself has ridden, which has the royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials and have them clothe the man and the, king, uh, the man the king wants to honor and parade him on the horse through the city square and call out before him, this is what that's done for the man the king wants to honor. So the king told Haman, hurry and do just what you said, just what you proposed. Take the garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything you have suggested. So Haman took the garment and the horse. He clothed Mordecai, paraded him through the city square, calling out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. What a bad day. For him, right? And have you ever been like humiliated? This is like the ultimate humiliation. You just doesn't get any worse than this. And I, I just love it. The king goes, that Mordecai, I'm sorry, Haman goes to the king to have Mordecai assassinated. And instead, he becomes the noble official that has to take the horse 
with Mordecai on it and walk through the city square going, this is how the king treats those he wants to honor. Pay attention to this important man on the horse that I'm just leading around on the ground down here. I'm just horrible humiliation for this guy. Terrible, and I love it. Now, I don't know what Mordecai's face looked like, but I guess if I was looking for one word, it would have been smug. Could you just picture him just not saying a word and just going, looking at Haman, (laughs) and just kind of just smiling the whole way. We don't hear of anything that he says. He just gets paraded, and he didn't even know it was coming. He's working at the gate. Haman shows up, puts these clothes on him, puts him on the horse, and starts parading him around and shouting through the city square. That's fantastic. And by the way, the king's question is spectacular. And it's actually kind of reminiscent of Haman's question. Haman brought up the fact that there's this people group that doesn't honor you, and it would be worth it for you to exterminate them. And the king never asks who it is and says, go ahead and do it. The king now goes to Haman and says, who, how should I honor the person that I, that I want to honor? And Haman never says, well, who do you want to honor? He just assumes. It's perfect. It's like the exact setup um, from before. I think it's really, really cool. All right, so while this is not a, the, while the story of Esther is not a, a moral story with, you know, 10,000 moral lessons we should learn from it, um, I do think there are some lessons that we can be learning from it. Um, some of these lessons that we grab from, from these books are meant to really help us in, kind of inform the way that we live around others, like, um, like avoiding the, the arrogance of Haman is one of them. There's another lesson I think we can mine out of this story uh, from Mordecai and from this instance, and that is, uh, has to do with, I think, like work ethic. Um, Mordecai turned in an assassination attempt to the king. Never got anything in return for it. I don't think that Mordecai did it so he would get a reward. He did it because I believe it was the right thing to do. He understood his calling as a Jew in exile was to do what was in the, in the favor of those who were over you. That was part of their command as Jews, was to bless the countries that they were to serve under. And he never received a reward for it. And I think that's a great lesson for us to consider when it comes to work ethic. Um, Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 in the New Testament says this, Slaves, obey your human masters in everything, and don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. And I think it's a great lesson for us today. While it's always nice to be acknowledged by our bosses, it's always nice to be appreciated by those we work under. That shouldn't be why we work, and that shouldn't be the only time we do something that would please them and ultimately pleasing God. Um, Ultimately, we're reminded that we work as God's people. We work for God not just for our earthly bosses. And that even though we may never get recognition on this earth, like Mordecai figured he probably wouldn't, he ended up getting recognition. We may never get recognition on this earth for what we do. That's not why we do it. We should be realizing that there will be a day where we will get recognition for what we do from our Father in heaven, who we work for all the time. 
I've also found that uh, we often have a timeline in our brain as to when things should happen. And I have a feeling that Mordecai was thinking, I deserve at least a thank you. And we don't know how long it was from the time that he stopped the assassination attempt to the time that he actually gets acknowledged. It's possibly up to a couple years' time. Because the assassination attempt came when the second round of virgins were collected. And then Haman got, uh, or Haman got promoted. So we don't know how long it was. It could have been months. It could have been a couple years. But we often have this timeline in our brain of, of when we should get acknowledged or when certain things should happen. And I've learned that God's timing is not always my timing. As a matter of fact, <laughs> most often God's timing is not my timing if I was just to throw it out there. I, I often get frustrated because I think that God's delaying too long on certain things. But I know that God always has the perfect timeline. And this timeline, you can see how God had worked it out perfectly uh, for the scenario that's playing out. So, verse 12, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried off for home mournful with his head covered. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened. And his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. So Mordecai goes back to business as usual. Could you imagine being at work? And all of a sudden, this royal parade shows up. You get put on a horse. You get dressed in the king's clothes and everything else. You get paraded around. This is what the king does, someone he, he really likes, and he wants, to, he wants to show honor to. And then you get dropped off back at work. Would that be awkward or what? I mean, people wouldn't know what to say to you, or what was that all about, or what's going on here? I bet there was a lot of talk around the water cooler at the King's Gate that day. Um, that's just, that doesn't happen all the time. Matter of fact, as far as we know, it's the only time it happened because Haman made it up. This is what you should do. <laughs> not give him a reward, not give him money. Apparently he had enough of that. He wanted the praise. So Mordecai goes back to business as usual. Haman is totally humiliated. He runs home with his head covered, sulking. And he says, you're not going to believe what just happened. And his wife says something very profound. Since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him. Your downfall is certain. Now, guys, wives, it's not really in any way to encourage your husband. You're dead. Basically what she's saying, you're done. But why would she say that? Because he's Jewish, you're certainly undone. If you think about it right now, the Jews are on a death sentence. They have no power. They're slaves with a kill order against them. And in approximately ten months, nine months from this time, they're going to be exterminated. So why would she say that because he's Jewish, she would be undone? that he would be undone, excuse me, that he was doomed. 
I think it's because of another one of the unmentioned lessons of the book. That even in the Persian culture, the God of the Jews was known. The Egyptians knew him because of what happened with Pharaoh. The Persians also knew about Yahweh, about the God of the Jews. And even though he's the unmentioned God of the Jews in this book, apparently his reputation was known even by the Persians who did not worship him. Mordecai had no power in and of himself to do anything. And it wasn't because it was Mordecai that was elevated that Zeresh said, you're undone. Because he's a Jew, you will not stand before him. And I believe that has to do with even those people who didn't know God personally, understanding that God is very powerful, that Yahweh is powerful. Um, I have a note here, um, and uh, I think it's from David. I think he popped it in on me. It says, uh, I love and I love this and think it's one of the coolest parts of the story. Shows the Jewish reputation as being widespread, not just uh, family tall tales. And the moral, um, come on, I mean, hey, man, listen to your wife. There's your moral. Hey, man, listen to your wife. You just pronounce Haman a little bit differently. Anyway, so before Haman can even make his case, before he can even collect his thoughts, he's taken off to the second banquet, which I think is just everything's happening in a hurry here. So it's just rapid fire, rapid fire. The events that take place in chapter six and seven just keep take just keep firing off. You have Queen Vashti being banished, and it takes two years before they start looking for a new queen, and you have one year worth of beauty treatments before she can go in to be with the king, and then Esther wasn't even one of the first ones, so who knows how long it was after that before she actually got to be with the king. So you have years that take place from the time that Vashti is vanquished and the time that Esther becomes queen. And then you have years that takes place before uh, Haman is, is elevated into his position and before these things take place, up to five years four to five years. So you have all these years that pass, and then all of a sudden, you have this 24-hour period where everything's just happening really, really fast. It's just like firing off constantly. Um, it's meant to actually show um, some more drama, to show the activity and the action. It's meant to make you really understand how fast things are crumbling, falling apart for, uh, for Haman. Um, as a matter of fact, the word fall is a really good indicator of what's happening, what the author's trying to accomplish here. Um, so fall is, uh, let's see, the lot fell on the month uh, of the 12th month. So there's the word fell in uh, chapter three, verse seven. The king told Haman not to let anything fall or fail to be done um, in chapter six and verse 10. Haman, later on, Haman's gonna fall on the couch. Um, Great fear is going to fall on the people. Uh, all of these fall words are meant to give. You're going to see them come up in the chapters ahead. They're, they're meant to show this tumbling down. So here you have a man who was elevated up to the second highest position in the country. No one greater than him except the king. And you're going to watch his fall, literally, as he tumbles down from that elevation and just keeps tumbling down. It makes you think of some Bible verses, doesn't it? Pride comes before the fall. I mean, if you're looking for a verse to kind of sum up the book of Esther, you could take that one if you want to look at the life of the, of the bad guy. That would be one great one to look at. So speaking of falling, um, can you believe how many things just happen to fall into place? Just happen to fall into place? 
There's another one of those society agnostic phrases that we've kind of adopted even in Christian circles. Yep. Yep. Things just fell into place for me. Have you ever said that before? Yeah, we have, right? Yep. Things are just falling into place. This story is meant to be blatantly obvious about how many things are falling into place to the point where you as a reader or listener could not help but acknowledge the fact that, yeah, it's more than just things are falling into place. Somebody or something is behind all of this. Esther was selected as queen five years before. Mordecai stopped an assassination attempt sometime after that, but was never thanked. On the night before Haman planned on asking for Mordecai to be killed, the king couldn't sleep. <laughs> so he had a record of his accomplishments read to himself. There's something, if you can't sleep at night, you know, have somebody read you your life history. And as they're reading through the life history, the attendant who's reading the history of the king happens to come across the failed assassination attempt that Mordecai stopped. And he happened to ask what's been done. And the attendant knew nothing. Just so happened. And it just so happened that Haman happened to be in the court that morning. It just so happened. It just so happened. The events that we read are meant to create suspense, but they're also meant to remind us that God is not surprised by anything. And even though we may look at this and think this is unfair or, oh, look how this is playing out and we're kind of watching it unfold as a reader and going, oh, that's cool. What's going to happen next? God knows the beginning from the end. And all of these events that took place, remember the main purpose of Esther is to remind us that God is in control. Nothing surprises him, that all of this was part of his plan. Um, everything has been well orchestrated. Um, and that's the point. Everything's been preordained. They didn't happen at the summoning of the great king of Persia. They happen at the summoning of the great king of kings. And in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 10, we're reminded of this. So remember this and be brave. Take it to heart, you transgressors. Remember what happened long ago, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. So though we can try to draw some moral lessons like pride comes before the fall and a haughty spirit before destruction, good lessons to learn. Though we could take a good moral lesson on working for God rather than for man and not working for the approval of man or for applause from man, but working for the applause of our master who someday will stand before the God in heaven so that he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Though that's a great lesson to learn from this, remember the ultimate lesson is that God is the orchestrator of all things in life. And that God has a plan, and God's plan will be accomplished. And no matter what your circumstances look like, or the times that you live in, or the challenges that you're facing, God is still in control. And for the Jews who thought they were going to be annihilated, this is the hope. Hope will come. Rescue will come. God will 
save us because God has promised to. God is faithful. He has a plan. He can be trusted even when life doesn't look like it. So I would say as a theological perspective, one thing we should be grasping from this book, next week, Lord willing, we'll wrap up our thoughts. We're going to get through the end of the book uh, next week and look at some of the, the other lessons from it. But I want to challenge you and encourage you not to define your theology by your environment. Don't define God by your circumstances. For instance, somebody may say to you, if God is good, why? What are they trying to do? Define God by the circumstances. Don't define God by the circumstances. View your circumstances through the lens of God. Is God always faithful? Yes. Do I see it right now? Maybe not. Does that change who he is? Absolutely not. Allow your theology to change your perspective on the reality around you. Don't allow your circumstances and your environment to change the way that you view God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are trustworthy. Thank you that we can count on you, that your plan never fails, that you're always faithful to your promises, faithful to your word. Father, we like to think that we know what should happen and when it should happen. We like to have all the answers, and we're just reminded so often in this book from your word that we don't have all the answers. We're not meant to have all the answers. What we're meant to have is enough to learn to trust you, that what's most important is not figuring everything out, but what's most important is having a relationship with you and placing our faith and our future in your hands. So, Father, teach us to trust you, to not change in our view of you because of our circumstances, but to remain faithful to you the way you are to us, that the way you are to yourself and to your word. Thank you that we have something more solid than our society, um, than our governments, than even our own selves to count on, that we have a God who knows the beginning from the end, and we pray that not only your plan will be accomplished, but that you would show us how we fit into that plan, to be a part of it, and not to run away from it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for uh, being a part of the third chapter that we've been through in, in Esther. Like, Lord willing, next week we're going to get through the rest of it um, and look at some of the feasts and what takes place on that. Um, and then we'll be back to the book of Ezra. Uh, so please be praying for your church family, um, praying for, some of you have asked if there's going to be a meal train for Dave and Ellie. I think there is going to be one coming up. Make sure we have your email address right now. They didn't need that, but we'll be trying to get meals and stuff together for them. So make sure we have your email address so that we can, um, get word out to you. Uh, also, a reminder that we have switched church management software programs, so um, it's a great time to switch over and get the app and get connected there. We'll be doing a lot of communicating through that app. Um, if you have availability to a smartphone, it's a good thing to do. You can also connect on the website. You don't have to go to the, you don't have to have an app and a smartphone. So other than that, um, I think that's all of our announcements. Uh-oh.
Hang on, David's chiming in. Okay. David, anything you want? You're still alive or not? David, uh, if you're watching, is there anything you want to share with the church family? He's typing. He's just typing me, telling me that he had problems with the connection. Fine, David. We'll catch up with you later. So thank you very much for being here. God bless you, and we'll see you, Lord willing, uh, next week. So have a great day.